The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. If we haven't met before, I am Dave. I'm the high school pastor here at TBC, and it's really good to see you all this morning. You all doing okay? Good. Good to see you. All right, so today we celebrate uh, the start of Holy Week. This is, this is Palm Sunday, of course. And we are looking at a familiar story in the book of Luke. Now, some say the gospel of Luke uh, can be divided into three different sections. So one section targeting the mind, one section targeting the will, what it means to follow Christ, and a third section, which goes after the heart. And we're going to be in that third section today in Luke chapter 19. And uh, it's a story that we all know well, but I want you to see it through maybe a different lens this morning. And I want you to see through the lens of what happens right before the story of of Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. The big idea in this section is the cost of discipleship, the the cost of of following Jesus. And it starts with the story of Zacchaeus. Now, you can remember the story of Zacchaeus. I know you know the song. And whenever I see a sycamore tree, I can't help but think about the story of Zacchaeus. And uh, so Zacchaeus is this wealthy tax collector. And you remember the stories of how the Jewish people hated the tax collectors because the Romans would recruit Jewish people to collect taxes for them. And then these people would become traitors and turn their people and and collect their money and also take a large surcharge uh, as well. And so the wealthy tax collector were hated by the other Jewish people. And for Zacchaeus... His identity is built on his wealth and his success, but when he surrenders his life to Christ, his life changes drastically, and he gives away half of all that he had to the poor, and he repays anyone that he cheated four times over, and uh, so for, for, for Zacchaeus, people became more important than money, integrity more important than success, and he counted the cost, and he saw it as worthy to follow after Jesus. Now, after, after Zacchaeus expresses faith in Christ, Jesus says to, this to, to the dismay of the crowd. He says this, Today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And you can hear the crowd just groan as he says this to Zacchaeus. Because they would have hated someone like Zacchaeus. Then Jesus turns to the crowd and he tells a story. And he tells a story about a rich man who goes to a faraway country. And before he leaves this rich man, he gives each of his 10 servants three months salary, which is a lot of money in any day. And when the, when the man comes back, he finds two of his servants have invested and they've grown the money. And then one just hid the money and didn't do anything. So some people, they, they count the costs and they see it as worthy while others don't, and they just sit on their hands. And so I want you to think about those two stories, the story of Zacchaeus and also the parable that Jesus tells in in Luke chapter 9, as we examine once again what might be a familiar story to you, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Because he's going to ride into Jerusalem, and there will be those who count the cost and truly worship him. And there will be those who seem to worship him, but then realize later the cost is too much, and they later on reject him. Then there are those who just outright reject him altogether. So look with me at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 31. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples 
saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, this is the season of Passover in Jerusalem, so a big festival, big celebration happening there in the city. And this is when they would celebrate God setting them free from being enslaved down in Egypt. Remember, after the nine plagues, Pharaoh still refused to allow the Israelites to leave and go worship God in the wilderness, so God sends one final plague in which he would take the firstborn from every house in Egypt, but the nation of Israel would be spared if they put that, that blood of that animal sacrifice on the doorposts of their home, and God would literally pass over their house and spare them from this plague. So this is Passover week in Jerusalem, and this is a time when the city would grow 15 to 20 times its normal size. It was usually 80,000 people at that time, so roughly close to what we have here in Temple, Texas. So imagine Temple growing 15 to 20 times over the course of a week, you can just imagine the chaos that that would feel like, but also the, the party and the celebration element that might be there in the city. So this is all taking place. This is a map of this area, and this is the, what you see on the right-hand side is the pathway that Jesus and his, and his crowd would have followed to go into the city. So they go through uh, Bethany, then Bethpage, and this area over to the right is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are from. They're from that town. And this is where Jesus raised up Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus is well known in this area. And this is why when they're taking the colt, all they have to say is, the Lord needs it. And the answer is, well, go ahead, you can take it. They know who Jesus is here in this area of Israel. Now, it is possible that the appointment with the the colt was prearranged or meant to be kept a secret because uh, the reason for this is if Jewish leaders found out that they were following Jesus, they could be put out of the synagogue. And so that was a serious deal. So there's a possibility this is a secret thing and a secret arrangement had been made prior to this interaction. Now, why would Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, it was partly to fulfill the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, where it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, if you're, if you're not yet a Christ follower, I think it's really helpful for us to know that what's happening over in Luke chapter 19 was foretold 500 years prior in Zechariah chapter 9. I think we're going to find great comfort in that, especially not just for the unbeliever, but also for the believer. I think as believers, we tend to take prophecy for granted, don't we? We just, we grew up knowing it, understanding it, and we don't realize there was... 500 years prior to this event in Luke chapter 19, this is prophesied back in Zechariah chapter 9 that this would happen with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey there in Luke chapter 19. So riding on a donkey fulfills prophecy, but it also carries deep meaning 
Because whenever we imagine an earthly king, how do we picture an earthly king today? Do we picture them riding on a meek, humble, unimpressive donkey? Or, we do, or, or do we picture them on a majestic, powerful war horse? We picture the horse, right? And that is how they would enter when riding into a city, when they're trying to communicate authority, I'm in charge, power. They would ride that in that way if they're communicating those things. But there was a time when ancient kings would ride on a donkey whenever they returned from a victorious battle, riding on a donkey communicated peace. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because no one's intimidated by a donkey. If you're trying to intimidate, you're not going to saddle up Eeyore and ride into town, right? That's not going to be intimidating at all. So even today, we expect a king or a queen to ride in on something impressive, something fancy like an expensive car, possibly, maybe an ornate horse-drawn carriage, possibly. We would never expect a king to ride in on a... You see, I don't want to say a name of a car because then one of you is going to own that car and it's going to sound offensive to you. So I'm not going to say a name, but you get the idea of what I'm talking about here. So when Jesus rides in on a donkey, he is saying, I come in peace. I come to bring peace. Not, not peace through an iron fist, but peace through iron nails. Nails that would eventually pierce his hands and his feet just days later as he would sacrifice himself on that cross. You see, many kings would, would ride into a city to invade, but Jesus doesn't do that here. He comes into Jerusalem not to invade, but to invite. When he comes into Jerusalem, it is an invitation. His entrance is an invitation to all of mankind, to all of humanity, to have peace with God, peace between God and man. But whenever we see the words of Zechariah, he also mentions not just peace between God and man, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the victory gained through his resurrection. So it's not just peace with God and man, but it also says here in Zechariah 9, verse 10, that peace, there'll be peace among nations. There will come a day when the world no longer needs the instruments of war listed here back in Israel's time, the chariot, the war horse, the battle bow, or today it'd be tanks and missiles and fighter jets. And when I read that passage, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, I can't help but think about how comforting those words must be to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now. Just to read that and, and understand that, that eventually there will be peace, not just with us and God, but also among people and among people groups. We can find great comfort in those words. And then look back over at Luke chapter 19, verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it, meaning the colt, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, the owner of this colt seems to have some knowledge of Jesus. He's possibly a follower of his, and you know, why else would he be okay with someone taking his colt? You know, Jesus needs it? Okay, you can have the colt. 
And so I think we, we see an important lesson here that this man takes his, sees his possessions properly. He sees them in the proper light, recognizing that all of it belongs to Jesus anyway. There's a generous spirit in this person, whoever this person is, that's loaning these, these, these disciples the colt. I think we saw a, a very similar spirit of generosity this week. As many of you all gave towards the TBC garage sale and, and sacrificed your time as well. And I'm sure similar conversations happened inside of your homes and your families due to the garage sale. You know, why are you taking that couch? Why are you taking my bike? Why are you taking my jazzercise videos? Well, the Lord needs it, of course, right? And so there is a proper way for us to view our stuff. And with an open hand, and this person, whoever this person is that has this colt, this donkey, is going to give it to the disciples to let them use it so Jesus can ride into the city. Now some people, so they, they, they bring the colt to Jesus and they begin laying their cloaks on the animal as a saddle, but also they're laying their cloaks down in the road for Jesus to pass over. Other gospels say that they cut down branches from trees and laid those on the road as well. And but, which by, I'm really glad we call this Palm Sunday and not Cloak Sunday. It's not the same ring to it. You know, Palm Sunday sounds much better. And so they're laying their cloaks down on the road as well. And here's why they're doing this. Some think they're doing this to remember the moment, kind of like an autograph today. You know, I want to own the cloak or I want to have a palm branch that was touched by the donkey that was carrying Jesus, like a memento, like a souvenir. I think of a few weeks ago, my daughter... Um, and some friends, some of my daughter got invited last minute to go up to watch Baylor's men's team play basketball and to win the, the Big 12 regular season game. I forget who they're playing against that game, but um, any Sikkim fans in the room, probably so. You can probably tell me later on who they're playing that game. But um, my daughter somehow ends up, after the game with her friends, going down on the court somehow, which never happens when I go to stuff like that. And ends up on the court and taking pictures of players and, and getting little things autographed and so on. And just comes home to our house just beaming with excitement. Like, look who's autographed. I'm like, I can't even read that. Who is that? And pictures. And, and, and why did we do stuff like that? We do it because we don't just want the experience. We want to say, look, I was there. I watched it. Like, here's the autograph. Here's the picture. My daughter did ask me to tell you, uh, like, every name of every player she met. And I can't, I just can't remember those names, okay? So I'm not going to do that this morning. But she was so excited because she could say, this is what I have to remember this moment. This is a memento, a souvenir. And this is why we do those kinds of things. We want to show people, I was, I was there. This is proof that I experienced this. This is what's happening here. This is the cloak this is the palm branch that Jesus walked over. And they want to keep it as a, as a memento to remember this moment by. They know this is a big moment there in the city of Jerusalem. So look down at verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So as they near Jerusalem, the crowd begins to swell and begins to get bigger and bigger. And now it's erupted into a full-on parade. And they're praising God. Everyone's praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen. They had seen the, the miraculous conversion of Zacchaeus, 
Other gospels say that there were two blind men that were healed around the same time as well. Over in Matthew, it says the two blind men call out to Jesus. They say, son of David, son of David, heal us. And the crowd tells them to be quiet. But then Jesus goes over and heals these two men. And then they start following after Jesus as well. They become part of the crowd. But this is really significant because the title these two men use, son of David, is a messianic title. And this would have been the first time in the Gospels that Jesus lets that be said in a crowd and he doesn't rebuke the people. So he's receiving that now as this messianic title from these two blind men. And it's very interesting because it's like these two blind men, before they're healed, they can see who Jesus is. Everyone else can't see it. These two blind people, they can see, see who Jesus is. Then he heals them. And now they're part of this crowd as it goes towards Jerusalem. And the whole crowd is saying this and shouting this to Jesus. Now you've heard us say numerous times from this stage that Jesus comes as king. But most of us probably yawn at that statement. We're just, we're just used to We're used to hearing that. We don't realize how dangerous it was to say that back then. The Jews would have heard this and, and thought of it as blasphemous. The Romans as treasonous. If you want to get yourself killed, go around and claim to be king in that part of the world at that time. But there's another way that we take that statement, Jesus is king, for granted. Because the scriptures tell us that Jesus is king, but what do we here in the U.S. generally think about kings? Our country was founded upon the idea that we don't want a king. We don't don't do kings over here on this side of the world. R.C. Sproul the famous uh, pastor and theologian says, tells a story about a friend of his named John Guest who was visiting from England and came, came to the U.S. to become a pastor and an evangelist over here in the U.S. And he's showing up around Philadelphia and, and they're looking at sites around the city and they're looking at Independence Hall and Liberty Bell and they go out to the country and start visiting antique shops where they had some Revolutionary War era signs, the ones that said like no taxation without representation, don't tread on me. You see those, of course, all over Texas. And, but one in particular stood out where it said, we serve no sovereign here, meaning we don't serve kings here. This man had come to preach the gospel in the U.S., but when he saw this sign, he thought, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to people who have a profound aversion to sovereignty, meaning that someone should be in authority over me? But here's the real irony, though. If we were founded upon not wanting a king, then why are we so obsessed with royalty? What country is most obsessed with the royal family over in England? We are. What country produces films and shows and centered upon kings and queens and princes and princesses? We do. So if we don't want a king or a queen, why are we so obsessed with royalty? C.S. Lewis makes a great point in one of his essays. He says, where we are forbidden to honor a king, we will honor millionaires and athletes, film stars instead, even gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food 
and it will gobble poison. If we don't serve a literal king, we will appoint other kings, cultural kings and queens for us to worship. This is why we have so many debates in almost every sphere of the world about who's the best, who's the goat. Is it, is it Air Jordan or King James? And we go on and on about all kinds of stars and athletes and movie stars because we can't help it. Our body, as our body craves food, so our soul craves worship. And if we don't worship and serve a true king, we'll just worship a false one. Now you might say, okay, well, just because we don't like earthly kings doesn't mean we have a problem with Jesus being king. We're just fine with him being king. You might say that. Except that as I examine my own life, and I think if we examine our lives honestly, we're not that okay with Jesus being king and being an authority over us. Because sometimes we acknowledge something with our mouth, but deny it with how we live. We say he's king, but then treat him like he's nothing more than a a good luck charm sometimes. In 2005, sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And in that book, they coined this phrase used by many other people since then. And here's the big idea. The word, the phrase is this, moralistic, therapeutic deism. I'll explain what this means here in a moment. But here's the big idea. Some say they're Christians, but when you ask them what they really believe about God, it looks nothing like the God of the Bible. So there's moralistic, which is, it's just all about behavior, making sure you're behaving properly. So there's moralistic. Then there's therapeutic, which is the purpose is just to make me feel good, good feelings, good vibes. Then there's deism, which is, I've got a vague notion about God. I believe in a being out there somewhere, but it's not anything like the God of the Bible. And this is how they summarize, generally speaking, this idea that you see here. So there's a creator God who exists, who ordered the world and watches over human life. I mean, something, someone's out there. We don't really know who they are, but they're out there. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair, as taught by most world religions. I mean, they're all just, they're all kind of saying the same thing, right? The central goal of life is to be happy, to feel good about oneself. I mean, who can argue with that? And God doesn't need to be involved in someone's life unless there's a real big problem. And then lastly, those who are good go to heaven when they die. So like a workspace salvation. God's just going to weigh everything out. And if you're, if you're good, you'll, you'll get in. And this is moralistic therapeutic deism. And the problem is so many people believe things like this and think this is Christianity and it's the farthest thing from the truth. One teen who was part of that study said this as a quote, morals play a large part in religion. Morals are good if they're healthy for society, like Christianity, which is all I know. The values you get from like the Ten Commandments, I think every religion is important in its own respect. You know, if you're Muslim, then Islam's the way for you. If you're Jewish, well, that's great too. If you're Christian, well, good for you. It's just whatever makes you feel good about you. This past week in my office, I met with someone who is kind of new to TBC, and they're wanting to maybe get involved with with working with students. 
And she told me a story of a previous church that she was, I don't know where it was, but she said that she worked with students before, and after a couple of years, she began to ask them, so, so why is it that you come here? Like, what, what makes you want to come here? And she said, generally, I would get answers like, it's just, it, it's fun, it's good, I mean, it's, it's right for me. And I loved her statement. She said, I want kids to understand the gospel, I want them to come here because they want to understand who God really is and, and what does it look like to live under him as our authority and to understand the gospel. And so she's thinking about getting involved here with us and our students. But someone who would say something like this, these are not the words of someone who believes that Jesus is king. Because if he's king, then he has authority over us. You know, we don't get to recreate God in our own image. We're made in his image. We don't get to turn the tables on God and recreate him in our image. We don't get to do that. There really are two responses to Jesus here. There are those who worship like we see here. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This comes from Psalm 118. This, this psalm would be sung when a king would go out to battle against Israel's enemies. And if they return victorious, there'd be this celebration, this big festival, this big celebration of victory as that king rode back in victory. And there is some irony here, though, because even though Jesus comes in peace, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, in another sense, he is coming to start a war. Not a war with Rome, but a war against Satan Demons, sin, death, and even hell itself. You know, some rightly see him. So some in this crowd rightly see him as the son of David. They see him as king and they worship him. But then you have the other side in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So this is the second response. This is that of the Pharisees. That of unbelief, that of rejection. And I have to hand it to them, at least we know where they stand, right? At least they're being honest about what they think about Jesus. And so they go to Jesus and say, okay, there's no way Jesus was gonna fall for this. There's no way that Jesus thinks this is okay. People are worshiping him, this is blasphemy. And so they ask Jesus, can you rebuke your disciples? But then watch what Jesus does in his response. They want him to rebuke the disciples, but then look how his statement rebukes them. On the one hand, I think he's saying, yes, all all creation, if if this crowd shuts up, then all of creation is going to praise me and worship me. I think there's an element of that where even creation just shouts out that, that Jesus is king. And that's true. But this is also a strong rebuke to the Pharisees. It's, it's like he's saying, these stones, these rocks, I've never picked up a rock and seen anything about a rock being alive. So Jesus refers to the rocks and says, and he says, these stones, these rocks, as dead as they are, they are more, they are more alive than you are spiritually. 
Inanimate objects like stones have a better perception of what Jesus came to do than those he came to save. So if you're a skeptic and you might say, well, well Jesus never claimed to be, to be God. Well, right here would have been a perfect opportunity to rebuke this crowd for worshiping him as God, but instead he rebukes those who were trying to quiet that worship. Now, most of the time on Palm Sunday, we think, of course, of the, the big celebration, and we should. This is a big, big celebration day, and we should think of, think of it that way. But for Jesus, it was also a time for weeping. It was also a time for lament. And so look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So in the celebration, as this big crowd just erupts going around the corner and Jerusalem comes into view, Jesus goes from being part of the celebration to now he's weeping. He gets emotional. And why is that? Well, he knew that the Jews would reject him, just like the prophets of old. Jesus weeps just like Nehemiah. We've seen Nehemiah weep several times now in the book of Nehemiah. Just like Nehemiah wept over Jerusalem, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, the state of the city, spiritually. Because the only peace that they want is political peace. But Jesus wants to bring them real peace. And they want to reject that. These religious leaders, they have, they have closed their eyes to Jesus. They're spiritually blind. They're blind to him spiritually. So following Christ is a mixture of worshiping and weeping. We should feel things deeply. Sometimes based on our personality, we do one but not the other. Maybe you're more inclined to, to weep. Like you, you see the sadness in everything, and rightly so. But, but when's the last time you truly like worshipped and celebrated and rejoiced and had joy in your salvation and found joy among the people of God? Or maybe you're, you're prone to worship, but, but not so much weep. And you love the, the party, the festival, the celebration. You love that. But you just don't want to go there. You don't want to go and see things for as they really are because that's, that's just too difficult. That's too hard. But when's the last time you really you wept for the unbeliever? When did you last weep over your own sin? When did you last weep over real injustice? So the Christian life is a mixture of, of worshiping but also weeping. We see that here as it goes from this celebration with the crowd and announcing that the king has come, but then Jesus turns to weeping. The, the man who sees everything as it really is. It goes to weeping. If you're not yet a Christ follower, I want to speak to you for a moment. Whenever we open up the scriptures, 
We see in Jesus great humility. I want you to think about people at your workplace that you might describe as, as humble. And you might think to yourself, you know, there's a reason why, I don't know, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm just kind of drawn to people like that. I like people that are humble and not so full of themselves. And even if you're not a Christ follower, I would bet that you're, you're drawn, you're attracted to people like that. And here's why you're, you're drawn to people like that. It's because of Jesus. Because Jesus was the most humble person, the most humble man who ever lived, who ever walked on this earth. And I think our souls, our hearts, were drawn to that because that's what Jesus, that's who Jesus is. Because there is one Jesus who stepped into our world, took on flesh, and humbled himself to offer us salvation. And this morning, if you don't know Christ, I want to invite you to surrender to Jesus, the most humble man who ever lived. And for you, the greatest act of humility would be to fall on your face and acknowledge him as king and cry out to him for the forgiveness of your sins and put your faith and trust in him and what he did for you at the cross and through his resurrection and then begin following him with your life. But I'll tell you the truth. We've seen themes today about the cost of following Jesus. And even though salvation is free, and it is, his salvation is free, his mercy is free, we cannot earn our salvation, there is a cost to following him. And as you weigh that cost, I want you to consider these words. There is a cost to following Jesus, but there is a greater cost to not follow him. As great and wonderful and celebratory as this scene is on the road to Jerusalem, one day there's going to be a much bigger celebration And this is described by the Apostle John over in Revelation chapter 7. I want to read that to you. And our hope and prayer is if you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you'll be there with us on that day celebrating like this. Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. So right now we're going to enter into a time of communion. And we do this to celebrate the the broken body and the blood of Jesus on our behalf. And Jesus told his disciples to do this as an act of remembrance but also as an act of proclaiming his death until he returns. So every time you take of the bread and the cup, you are proclaiming his death until he returns. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the night he was arrested, he's up in the room with his disciples. And in the Gospel of Luke, we read in Luke 22, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The scriptures also say that the cup represents his blood shed for us, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In Luke 22, it says, And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, remembering me. Father, we are so grateful for your broken body on our behalf. We're so grateful for your blood poured out on our behalf. God, we know that what we discuss today, what we discuss next week on Easter, these are familiar stories to us, God. Would you make them unfamiliar to us so we can worship you with fresh eyes and fresh ears and fresh hearts once again? And we pray that you would reinvigorate us spiritually. God, I pray for those that may not know you, that they would come to know you in surrender, recognizing that you, you are the true king. You are the only true king. And we would fall on our face and worship you, not just in this moment, but with our lives, our entire lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.